Welcome to Spectrum. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Welcome to the program this morning. Two guests are joining me later, the high-profile celebrity attorney, Jose Baez, who has represented such clients as Casey Anthony and the late New England Patriots star, Aaron Hernandez. But first, it is part two of my interview with former kid star, Steve Talbot, who was a regular on Leave it to Beaver and then went on to do all kinds of amazing things, including shooting documentaries for PBS. We begin, though, talking about rock music and a really amazing story. So you and I were emailing back and forth a couple of weeks ago and we have, turns out we have this uh, love of rock music in common and you have to tell the story about going to see the Kinks in concert at Madison Square Garden with your then girlfriend, I think it was 1972. Okay, yeah, that's funny. I've started to write a few kind of memory pieces and that's something I wrote just recently about something that, as you say, happened long ago. Like you, I'm a huge rock and roll fan. I was lucky enough to grow up and to see the Beatles, for instance. Wow. Both at Hollywood Bowl and then at Dodger Stadium. Saw the Rolling Stones many times. I grew up watching the doors on Sunset Strip, you know, on and on and on. I had a great music experience. I just saw this movie, a new movie coming out, documentary, very good about Janis Joplin. And, you know, I met Janis Joplin a couple of times. Okay, you met her. Did she know who you were? No, no, no. (laughs) Thank God. You're right. It would cut into my secret. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Although later, see, all these things come back. you know, very retro and, you know, right. a vinyl now, you know, yeah. so it's fine, it's fine. But uh, to get to this King story, <laughs> this is just crazy. I was living in New York at the time. I was actually teaching at a college on Long Island. And I had this very uh, street savvy uh, girlfriend who had grown up in Chicago, thought she was very cool and very tough. And she kind of was. And we, uh, we're going to go see a Kinks concert. We loved the Kinks. And they hadn't been allowed to play in the United States for a long time. Right. They caught up in some, some trouble, and they were kind of barred from performing in the U.S. So this was the early 70s, and they were at Madison Square Garden. We thought, fantastic. We went down there, and um, outside the concert, uh, a guy scalping tickets came up and said, hey, cheap tickets, buy them. And I was a little <laughs> dubious, but we bought them. And then we went in and uh, went up the escalator and into this, and you could hear the crowd shouting. I was all excited. We walked in, and it was an ice hockey game. And I was completely stunned (laughs) and thought, oh, my God, what's going on here? And, of course, the classic New York usher says, okay, kid, you know, what can I do for you? You And it's like, uh, I thought this was a Kinks concert, you know? (laughs) He turns these rabid New York Ranger hockey fans and shouts like any good New Yorker, belittling me, says, uh, this hippie kid thinks he's like a Kings concert. Crowds like booing and yelling at us. So I'm mortified and, you know, we slink out of that and go downstairs and we're trying to figure out what went wrong. And of course, unbeknownst to me at the time as a Californian, there were two venues at Madison Square Garden. Right. There was the big sports arena, and then there was, I believe in those days, it was called the Felt Forum, but it was where concerts were. Right. So this scalper had sold us tickets to the wrong event. Um, I wasn't too happy about that. And I was about <laughs> to go up, give up and go home, but my feisty girlfriend uh, had a plan, and she went up to the ticket booth, which was shutting down, 
And she said, hey, you, you people sold us the wrong tickets. And the woman who was there said, get out of here. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> she said, let me talk to your supervisor. And this guy came over. And to my amazement, all of a sudden, after listening to her story, said, oh, okay, we've had a few problems here with tickets. Sorry, you kids. Don't ever tell anybody about this, but I'm going to take care of you kids. <laughs> then proceeded us to proceeded to take us through the bowels of Madison Square Garden, downstairs, through the halls. And I couldn't tell. I was a little paranoid, you know, were we going to get arrested, beat up, thrown out? <laughs> right. Is this for real, you know? <laughs> Long story short, he takes us, knocks on a door, a door opens, and I'll never forget this. It's a room, basement room in Madison Square Garden filled with guys wearing green visors and under lights counting huge stacks of cash. Oh, wow. This is like right out of casino, isn't it? Totally out of casino. <laughs> and it, this was uh, the take, you know, this is still largely pre-credit card days. And they got ticket stubs and they got the cash and they're doing the take. And the guy with us says, motions to this guy. He goes, you know, Vinny, come here. <laughs> These kids, you know, they're a little trouble. And I'm going... This looks way too much like the Godfather. I'm in real <laughs> trouble now, you know? Uh, but again, amazingly, that guy does the same thing. Okay, you kids, we're going to take care of you. You promise never to tell anyone this, you know? And he took us out upstairs through the hallways, like kind of the scene in Spinal Tap when they're lost backstage. And it's endless. And we come up through a huge crowd, and he shoves people aside, and he takes us in takes it down and puts us in like 10th row center seats. Amazing. So then I got to hear Lola see the Kinks. And they sounded good that night? They sounded, they were fantastic. Yeah. Of course, I was terrified, you know, through most of the concert that some, you know, thug was going to finally figure out <laughs> and we pulled and throw us out. Yeah. So how did, how did you transition into becoming a reporter and documentary filmmaker? Basically, um, I was lucky enough to have a good education. I was an English major uh, in the six, late 60s when I was in college. Um, schools like Wesleyan were just starting film programs. I was still fascinated by film. I didn't want to be an actor anymore, but the media really interested me. There was so much going on in the world at the time. I got just really interested in in reporting and being a witness and going places and trying to understand what was going on. And I love to write, but I also had this complete fascination with cameras. So I started filming things, and I made a documentary film as my thesis film in college, and went off and was a reporter. I spent a lot of time in Africa as a freelance reporter in the uh, late 70s. Then I decided at a certain point when I was around 30, I needed a real job. I uh, moved in with a woman who later became my wife, and we had two, two kids. So I got a job working for the public TV station in uh, San Francisco, KQED, and I became a staff reporter and producer, and I just loved it. I felt totally in my element, and I got to do local reporting about politics and national stories, and I also did um, a series of films about writers, about authors for PBS. So I got drawn into that whole public TV system, which I loved, and I eventually went on to work for the series Frontline, which is 
still, I think, the best documentary series on TV anywhere. Yes. And I worked for them for um, almost 18 years. Well, and I know your early documentaries, Nuclear Weapons Accidents and, and uh, another on Dashiell Hammett, were actually Peabody Award winners. I mean, you've I'm sure you're very humble about all this, but you've really done quite well and have won a lot of awards over the years. Well, thank you. Um, I, I've been lucky, but yes, that's true. And I was lucky early on in my career. I did those two films that you mentioned back to back, and they were very different. Uh, the Dashiell Hammett, I've always been a Dashiell Hammett fan, uh, the Maltese Falcon, the Thin Man, yeah. those great, great stories. And in fact, my, I named my son Dashiell. Right. Um, and like Dashiell Hammett so much. And he grew up to be a lawyer and an investigator himself. So Fantastic. It all comes full circle. But that that was a biography of Dashiell Hammett uh, for PBS. It was a national show. And, you know, that was like to be a little more artistic in a show like that. And uh, my father, Lyle Talbot, actually did the voice of Dashiell Hammett, Hammett in that documentary. So that was the first time we ever worked together. I would imagine he got, I don't know if this was before the time when there was a lot of voice work, but he had such a distinctive voice that I imagine he did a lot of that type of thing. He did. I mean, he was so busy being on camera that he probably did less of it than someone else might have. But he did. He had a wonderful voice. It, it got deeper and, and richer the older he got. Um, he narrated a documentary for me that I did uh, about a, a woman named Beryl Markham, who was a pilot, grew up in uh, Kenya back in the colonial days and was one of the pioneering pilots of the world. She flew solo from England to the United States in the 1930s, and she wrote a wonderful memoir called West with the Night. And I made a documentary about her, and my dad narrated that one. And uh, Diana Quick, who was very big at the time in Brideshead Revisited on PBS, was the voice of Beryl Markham. So it's fun. I got to use actors in some of these uh, more arty films that I would do. But most of what I did was investigative reporting. I, I was a foreign correspondent for quite a while um, in Africa as well. So my wife, I, I met, is originally from South Africa. So I have a lot of attachments and experience working there. It's been a very interesting life. Yeah, it's certainly. And I and I wonder if the uh, traveling part of it as a reporter has just become a little too dicey these days as opposed to when you started. Yes, that's true. That's a good point. You know, when I was at Frontline, uh, right after 9-11, David Fanning, the executive producer of Frontline, uh, decided there needed to be more international reporting, try to figure out what was going on in the world. And so he started and hired me to run a part of Frontline that was called Frontline World. And it was it ran in the Frontline time slot. It was on the air for about nine years. It was a news magazine show, like 60 Minutes, three stories in each hour. And we would cover all sorts of issues all around the world. I was commissioning people to go out. I did some reporting myself where I would send myself out. I went to Lebanon. I went to Syria, spent time in Syria. I actually interviewed Bashar al-Assad. Strange experience. That's a long story. You know, I learned a lot, but mainly I was at that stage the senior producer and I was sending other reporters and producers out, uh, often to hot spots in the world. Uh, Northern Nigeria, we did early reporting on what's now become the whole Boko Haram phenomena in Northern Nigeria. Lots of reporting in the Middle East, in, in the war in Iraq. And as the person at that point in charge of sending people out, of course, I always had a great deal of fear and a 
real sense of responsibility about uh, making sure my reporters and producers were as safe as could be under those circumstances. And you must be very uh, passionate and proud of the uh, the music series that you have done over the years as well. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jim. I mean, that's actually, finally, after all the years at Frontline, and it was a just an incredible job to have. I, I left to uh, a few years ago to try to start a music series for PBS because I thought, you know, I love music so much, and that's the one thing that I've never... I've used a lot of music in films, but I've never made films about music itself. And so uh, with some friends, we put together a series of um, specials, which we called Soundtracks, uh, Music Without Borders. And we did an online version of it, too, for PBS. And it was very successful with an enormous amount of fun to do. Unfortunately, uh, we were never able to get the funding to to make it be a, a proper ongoing series. I'd love to get back to that someday. Yeah, it's hard to believe because that's it, it's fantastic. I, I encourage people to, to go find it. And and is there a, uh, a website that, that everybody can go to to uh, look into some of the stuff that you've done? Uh, they're scattered. You can go to the Frontline website, uh, pbs.org slash Frontline, and some of my work is there. To see soundtracks, uh, you can see that on PBS's video site, so pbs.org slash video, and just type in soundtracks, music without borders, and you can see those episodes online. I am more than uh, happy that you uh, said yes to an interview. I know that uh, sometimes when you've been in a show like Leave it to Beaver years ago, that it's the last thing that uh, people want to talk about. But your life has just been fascinating to me. I mean, everything that you've done and you've seen and produced over the years, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the show today. Well, I really appreciate it. And, you know, I'm, uh, let, let me leave you with this, Jim. You know, it's funny because with Leave it to Beaver, I absolutely love doing it when I was doing it. And as I say, Jerry and Tony were great people to work with. Really, the, the whole cast and the directors there, the whole atmosphere of that show. And then there was a period in my life when I didn't want to particularly be associated with it because I was doing other things. They did do a Leave it to Be right. a Revival series, yep. a movie, and they asked me to be in it. And I had to turn him down because I said, look, I'm an investigative reporter. <laughs> I can't be Gilbert anymore. And they kept sending me scripts where they'd say, okay, okay, we get it. Well, now, how about if you, Gilbert grows up to be a psychologist analyzing Beaver? <laughs> and I would say, you know, I'm sorry, guys. I just can't do it. So a few people would say, yeah, what's the Talbot? How come he's the only holdout not doing this show? And it's not because I didn't like the show, but it's because I wanted another life. And I'm very happy to, you know, remember it, think about it, share memories of it with other people. And I appreciate that. And, you know, Jerry told me, Jerry Mathers told me that, interestingly enough, that show, the new Leave it to Beaver, they lost the the Masters to that. And he really? said that they've been trying to, they've, you know, wanted to have it in reruns. And the reason it was never in reruns or syndication is because somehow somebody either made off with it or destroyed it or whatever, but it will never be seen again. So at least you've got that. Okay. <laughs> There you go. It was just not meant to be, I guess. Not meant to be. It's very funny. My dad did an episode of that revised series. Wow. That is so great. Again, thank you so much, Steve. You too. And thanks very much. Jim. All right, buddy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. My next guest is celebrity attorney Jose Baez, best known for defending Casey Anthony and the late NFL star Aaron Hernandez. Baez has more insight about Hernandez in his new book called Unnecessary Roughness. Hi, Jose. How are you today? 
I'm doing well, sir. How about yourself? Very good, thank you, and congratulations on the book. You've you've certainly never been one to shy away from high-profile tough cases, have you? Well, you know, if, if some things are worth said, you just might as well go ahead and say it. <laughs> uh, as, as it relates to the high-profile cases, I don't know. They seem to find me and not shy away from me either. Explain to me why a criminal defense attorney like yourself and others take on cases like Aaron Hernandez, which looked really impossible to the average person on the outside. You know, because I, I believe nothing's impossible. I don't. I don't think... I don't think the way I don't think in terms of losing cases. I, I, I try and look at them in a, in a diff, from a different perspective. I want to challenge the evidence, and if the evidence itself looks weak, uh, those are those are cases that need to be tried. Those are cases that need to because contrary to what everybody thinks, you never really know what happened. Um, unless you're there. You, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, you try to challenge the evidence and make sure that the system stays, you know, as we say, there's a, there's a three-legged chair of justice, and if you don't have one of those legs working properly, it's going to fall. So, you know, that that's... Uh, it's not just what I do, it's what I really believe. I'm a football fan, and even before Hernandez had uh, come out of college, there were a lot of questions about his personality and who would actually pick him up. I mean, it was similar in ways to the Randy Moss case, I guess, where it took a lot of teams in the draft before somebody finally gets to somebody like this. Did you actually hesitate before taking on this case? I did before I met him, and once I met him, I was full speed ahead. I didn't I didn't have any issues with it at all. And it's funny that you say that about both Randy Moss and, and Aaron. Uh, at the end of the day, first of all, Randy Moss never had any issues um, other than, you know, being a little flamboyant. But those, sometimes those reputations are blown so out of proportion. Aaron's biggest issue in college was that he smoked marijuana. And if you know anything about the college game, that's so prevalent, uh, it, 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 even in the NFL. And on top of that, he had one bar fight, which, again, it, it, it's something you look at, of course, but nothing that's conclusive. And he was in a group that was questioned about a shooting. And because he grabbed headlines later on, somehow, some way, reporters started attaching him to that shooting. And now if you, you ask anybody, they'll say, oh, yeah, he was involved in a shooting back in college which is not the case. Your first impression of him, because I had read, it may have even been a quote from you, that he really was a little kid in a man's body. He was. He was a big, you know, he was a big goofball, but there, there was more to him. I mean, he was, he had intelligence. You could see it. He was very caring. And, and you know, a lot of people say to you, say to me, you know, well, you were his lawyer and he put on his best behavior because he knew you were helping him. That's true. However, I also had the opportunity to review all of the evidence and and his cell phones, and I read years of text messages, emails, his computer records. You, you want to know who somebody is? Take a good look at their phone. <laughs> and, yeah. and I've always felt that. And Aaron, by looking at his phone and his life, he was the type of person that never said no to anyone. And th there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, people who would call, people would come out of the woodwork and ask him for things, ask him for help, and he never said no. Cheyenne would describe him as the type of person that would give you the shirt off his back, and I saw nothing that would contradict that. 
Shayanna was his fiance. Correct. Correct. That's one of the rare things that people just don't know about Aaron. It has been said of you, Jose, that you become so devoted to your client that sometimes it comes at the expense of your own health. Is that a fair assessment? Well, you know, I, I, I can't deny that because <laughs> I, I, I've, I've sometimes taken a few hits. Um, but, you know, I believe in going all in. I mean, the, these people put their lives in your hands. And you really, I don't take that lightly. I mean, if I falter and if I screw up, someone could get life in prison and their whole lives are destroyed, not only their lives, but their families' lives. And and I take that seriously. I take it as if it, if it were a family member or a friend that I'm representing. I just don't want that on my conscience. I, I don't, I want to be able to say, look, I came into this and I gave it everything I had. And, you know, if the jury sees it one way, great. Uh, you know, if they see it our way, great. If they don't, well, I, all I know, there was nothing more I could have done. So while in prison, Aaron Hernandez was a constant target, was he not? He was because, you know, number one, he's big. And, and despite what everyone thinks, the big guys are the ones who get tested all the time. Everybody knows you want to you wanna be safe in prison. Find the biggest guy you can and punch him in the mouth. <laughs> and not only that... Um, he was a celebrity, so everybody would know if, if he got into a fight and lost or or uh, if he got tried and didn't respond. Uh, so, and, and Aaron was a fighter. Aaron didn't sit back and take anything. I, I, I think that was just his nature. It's what made him uh, a force on the football field. He didn't go down easily, and he wasn't going to go down easily in prison either. A two-part question here. What was the point where you thought, hey, maybe I'm going to get an acquittal here? And then how shocking was it to learn of Hernandez's uh, suicide? As it relates to the acquittal, I saw that pretty quickly. Um, you know, there's one thing where you look at the evidence and you're like, wow, we've got a great case. There's another thing making it happen. Uh, but when, when I saw the case, I thought to myself, I, I, you know, this is a great case. We've got a solid chance of winning. So so that's kind of how I analyze it. Of course, anything can happen in a courtroom, so you don't spike the ball before you get in the end zone, as, as they say. But, you know, I felt really good about his case. Now, as it relates to his suicide, I had no idea that that was coming. It, it was a shock to me. Uh, I had spoken with him hours earlier, and he was upbeat, laughing, joking, just a typical errand. To find out about that, I, I just, to this day, I'm, I'm shocked. People have compared you to Johnny Cochran and that style. Did you study the way that Cochran would build a relationship with a jury, and how important is that? You know, it's funny. I study all trial lawyers. Any, I've been a, a trial junkie since I've been in law school. I used to skip class and go into the library and watch the O.J. Simpson trial. I used to go and, and try and find old uh, televised trials, and it's something that I always study. So, yes, I, I cannot deny that um, I was a big fan of Johnny's. I liked the way, I, I saw the way he connected with juries. There's really no secret to being, to connecting with juries. It's really all about being yourself, and that's what I saw in Johnny. I mean, Johnny was being himself, and whenever I'm in, in front of a jury, I try my best to be real, and I think jurors can see whether a person is genuine or not and 
that goes a long way. One last question before I let you go. Uh, during these times where Colin Kaepernick is really kind of being blackballed because he takes a knee, just speculation, but if Hernandez had walked, do you think that he would have played again? I think he would have been blackballed. I, I really do. I, th- I think the NFL yeah. is an extremely hypocritical league. They turn their back on their players the second they're not useful to them anymore. That's the, the, the mere fact that they don't have guaranteed contracts should tell you everything. The second a player gets hurt, he's cut, and they're they're gone. They're not used anymore. If a player does something wrong or makes a mistake, they don't try to rehabilitate him and and, and uh, maybe make make him an example of look. This is a person who went down the wrong path. But through education and rehabilitation, now they're a model citizen, and you can be too. You know, instead of teaching that lesson, they cut them loose. And there's this silent killer called CTE that they are directly a part of. And the second a player starts to manifest any of the symptoms, like through domestic violence or or some other fight or something going on out in their personal lives, they cut them. Uh, and it's really a direct, and what they don't acknowledge is it's a direct result of playing football. Remember the Ray Rice tragedy, and that was horrendous what he did to his wife. But that impu- lack of that lack of impulse control, that those that aggression, where do you think it comes from? It doesn't come from the fact that he's a bad human being. It comes from the fact that he may have something wrong with his brain from playing football. One of the things you talk about in your new book, Unnecessary Roughness on Aaron Hernandez, and it's available everywhere. Jose, I wish I had more time to talk to you. It was a pleasure. I thank you for uh, the time this morning. Thanks so much, Jim. I appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy the book. Thank you. Thanks again to both of my guests this morning, attorney Jose Baez, and earlier, former actor, now PBS filmmaker, Steve Talbot. That is the end of this edition of Spectrum. I do hope to see you back here next Sunday morning at 7.30. Spectrum is hosted, written, and produced by Jim Tofty. If you have suggestions on future guests or topics, please send them to spectrum at smiradio.com.